The following audio is from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information about Park Church is available online at parkchurchdenver.org. Good morning, Park Church. Today's scripture reading is Matthew 7, 15 through 23. So if you'll turn there with me. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Sarah. Good morning, Park Church. It's good to see you all. Uh, My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. That passage is a heavy passage. And uh, and I'm excited to open up uh, the word with you and kind of work through uh, the beauty of what Jesus is actually warning us about and inviting us into uh, in Matthew chapter 7. Before we do, uh, one big announcement, an encouraging announcement. Uh, one of the things I, I say when I kind of often introduce myself is, my name is Gary, I'm one of the pastors here at Park Church, and that's because I am one of the pastors here at Park Church. I have the privilege of serving with uh, a group of leaders uh, who are just a group of godly humble, gracious, kind, and and wonderful leaders that together we have the privilege of serving uh, this church as a team of pastors. Uh, And that's an incredible privilege and joy for me, but one of the things we've felt for years now is that our pastoral team is not big enough to provide the kind of shepherding care that we feel like God's called us to provide for our church family. Uh, that to provide the sort of shepherding care where we know this church family well, we can support and care for you and lead you as fellow travelers towards Jesus um, is something that we need more pastors to do. And so for the, for the past several months, we've been in a process with a group of leaders that we uh, are encouraged about. Uh, the process included uh, just kind of working through things related to their character, their pastoral competencies, their family, their sense of calling. And we as a leadership team, as an elder team, are excited to recommend to you all as some new elder candidates, uh, six men that we feel like are qualified and called to the office of an elder. And so those leaders are Chris Gillespie, who currently serves as our executive pastor, Miguel Warren, who serves as our director of community, Neil Long, who's been serving as our director of community and formation, and then also three non-staff leaders, Brent Summers, Nick Wolverton, and Josh Sines. Um, These six leaders are people we've had the privilege of knowing, walking through life. They've been serving in the church 
in a number of ways for a number of years. And as we've walked through a process with them, just seeing the fruits of their life, the fruit of their character, their love for Jesus, their love for his word, and their love for the church, we're excited to recommend them to this church as elder candidates. And so what that means is we're actually, as the last stage in this evaluation process, really trying to get feedback from our church family. Uh, If you intersect in their lives or with their family in any ways, to hear words of encouragement or questions or concerns you might have, it's important for us. uh, As we walk through background references and other relationships and family references, just to open up kind of a a window of uh, feedback to actually hear from the church if there are any thoughts or questions uh, about any of these leaders. And so I'll be sending out an email uh, tomorrow that gives a little more detail and just kind of an open invitation to give us feedback. We'll send that out to the members of Park Church. If you have any questions, concerns, or encouragements, uh, you can email our elder team at elders at parkchurchdenver.org. The process that we're walking into after we kind of have some space to hear the feedback and process it, we'll begin a three-month candidacy. Uh, after that three-month candidacy, a kind of final interview and application and a congregational vote uh, to install these leaders as new elders and shepherds of our church family. And so it's exciting for us to think about the ways that God has called different leaders to use gifts to love and to serve, sacrificially serve this church family. And we hope it'll be an encouragement to you as we see God continuing to do what he promised he would do, which is build his church and establish his kingdom, and we get to be a part of it. Part of that is the multiplication of our lives, all of our lives around the city and throughout the world, but it also is the multiplication of shepherds to kind of, as best we can, as imperfect humans, relying on God's grace, dependent on his mercy, uh, but trying to represent his shepherding love uh, to this church. And so uh, be praying for us in that process, but also if you have feedback, we'd invite you to give that over the next week. So we have then the next kind of week after that to process and pray and work through any of the questions uh, that come up. Uh, so it's encouraging. Uh, we're grateful for what God's doing here at Park Church and thankful for you all for your involvement uh, and participation in the mission God's given us. Um, we're going to pray here for a moment as we open up this passage. It is a heavy passage. We're going to back up to verse 13 and, uh, and kind of see some of the really stark realities that Jesus points us to and kind of confronts us with. And my prayer has been today that God would, in this moment, kind of have a moment with each of us, like a friend that would sit down with you, who's paying attention to your life, the direction of your life, the decisions of your life, and would actually kind of sit down and draw attention to areas where you may be wandering away from his love, wandering away from his wisdom for life, and invite you again to turn to him, to trust in his mercy and his grace and his love towards you, which isn't contingent on what you do or don't do, but also in the realm of his mercy, in relationship with his grace, to follow his way to life. And so we're going to pray that his spirit would speak very specifically and powerfully to all of us. So would you join me? Jesus, we need you today. You are the great shepherd who tends to your flock. You chase us down when we're wandering. You mend us and bind us up and encourage us when we're weak and hurting. You rebuke us and pull us back into the fold when we've obstinately run away. You lead us beside streams of water. You restore our soul. And you're leading us in this path of righteousness, the the way of life, the life of the kingdom. And so we pray you would speak today, not just to us as a whole flock, as a whole community, as this 
community of followers of Jesus, but that you would also speak to individuals. Uh, Speak to individuals through your spirit in very specific and profound ways. Our prayer is that all of this church family would continue to follow you, that we would persevere as followers of Jesus, trusting in your wisdom, trusting in your grace, and following your way of life, the life of the kingdom, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I remember very vividly something from my freshman year in college. I, I don't have, I have like a horrible long-term memory and I'm working through that with counselors. Like why do I not remember things? But I have these like moments that just feel like vivid to me, that feel like these like really profound kind of turning points in my life. And then one of them was when I was a freshman in college, I played soccer for the school I was at and, uh, and a senior uh, teammate sat me down at the sort of towards the second semester of my freshman year. I remember we were in a stairwell in the dorm and he just wanted to talk to me about just some observations he had about my life. And, uh, and so he sat me down and he expressed some concern about the way I was living, about the decisions I was making, about the crowds I was living in. And, and, and he expressed it with, with love and with kindness. He didn't express it with any sort of like condescension or superiority. I knew it was motivated by love, but I still, like in the moment, felt like he was ridiculous. I thought he was totally off base. He was making a big deal of things that I didn't feel like were a big deal, and I blew him off. Uh, I scoffed at him, I rejected it, and I kept kind of doing the things I was doing and living in the ways I was living. And that direction that I was living in uh, wound up, uh, kind of like landed me in the dean's office at the end of my freshman year. And I was suspended from the school and put on probation, a disciplinary probation that made me miss the first half of the soccer season for the next year. And, uh, and I remember as I'm like experiencing all these consequences to the decisions I had made and the direction I was living in, this real sense of embarrassment, number one, the sense of like, a real, I felt like I let people down, I let my teammates down, I let family and friends down. There are men and women who had invested in my life and cared for me and who had encouraged me in so many different ways. I felt like I had let them down, but also just felt just the sort of destructive pattern of life that I was living in and, and thought like, how did I get here? How did I get here? How did I get to this place where I had turned away from things that I knew were right and wisdom for life and kind of went in essentially like the decision-making process that I had for like most of my freshman years, is it fun? Is it funny? And is it risky? You know, like if it's fun and funny and risky, that's what I want. Like something that's fun, something that's funny, something that's risky. My concept of what's fun, my concept of what's funny were very distorted, uh, you know, my later, uh, my w- wife, Jamie, uh, was at the same school, and I remember I would, like, share with her stories of things I thought were funny, and she's like, who do you think that was funny for, you know? I'm like, I thought it was funny. Like, how do you think other people around you felt about that? I'm like, I don't know. And, like, little by little, like, the Lord using these things, they really changed the way I thought about a lot of, a lot of life. And I remember over, over years, the experiences of grace from people and forgiveness and love and people that continue to care for me, and confront me and challenge me, God was turning something in my life. And it was about my senior year in college when I remembered that conversation. I hadn't thought about it much, but I remember that conversation with the senior when I was a freshman. And it just struck me what a profound moment that was. 
that it wasn't fun for him. Like, I don't know if you've, if you've ever had to sit down and have a hard conversation with a friend that you were concerned about them, or if you've ever been the friend that somebody else is sitting down with you and they're having a hard conversation confronting things in your life. But it's not fun for anybody. Nobody, like, likes that moment. And, uh, and I remember just looking back and, and thinking, what a powerful act of love for him to sit down with a freshman and actually express to me things he saw in my life, patterns and a direction, and to express concern and actually invite me and call me to turn. It's like he wanted something more for me. It's like he saw something in me and he wanted me to go a different direction. And I ignored the call and found myself experiencing the sort of destructive, destructive effects of kind of going my own way, kind of following the wisdom that seemed right to me. And, and what we see in this passage in Matthew chapter 7 is one of those moments from Jesus. It truly is a moment where Jesus is sitting down with his followers and he's cautioning us about a particular way of life, a pattern, a direction that most of us at some point or another find ourselves on, that really all of humanity is on at some point in our lives heading down this path that leads to destruction. And Jesus is sitting down with us in this moment with his followers, with you, and saying there is a path that leads to destruction. It is wide, it is broad, it feels right, it feels good, tons of people are on it, and the end is nothing but pain. And that's not trying to kind of be this like brutal killjoy that's trying to like crush your attempts to have fun at life. He's actually inviting you to something better. He's inviting you to a way that leads to life. And my heart in this passage is that I've just felt even conviction this week in some really specific areas of my life where Jesus has said, these ways of life, these ways of thinking, these patterns of relating to people, these are unhealthy. And this conviction about arrogance and judgmentalism and cynicism that he's just convicting me of saying, these will lead you to destruction. And this invitation, I have a better way for you. I have a better way for you. My heart for you is that through the Spirit of God today, whether you're here in the building or at home, that the Spirit of God would speak into your life in very specific ways and invite you to turn from destructive path and actually follow Jesus on the path that leads to life. And I guarantee if you will open up your heart to the Holy Spirit, there will be areas that he will light up, not as somebody that's trying to crush you, but somebody that's trying to liberate you and welcome you and lead you to life to the full. And so what I want to do this morning is just unpack in the passage. It's really three warnings here to close the Sermon on the Mount. We'll get to the fourth warning next week about these two houses. Um, but three warnings that are here in the passage. Each of the warnings isn't just a don't do something. It's a turn from this because there's something better kind of framework. It's framed in these alternatives. And the first one shows up here in verse 13. If you're looking for a tag, the tag is just right here in the passage. Enter by the narrow gate. Enter by the narrow gate. Look with me at verse 13. Jesus says, at the culmination of the Sermon on the Mount, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy, or a better translation would be broad, that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, or a better translation for hard to be constricted, that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Um, the framework that Jesus is opening up here is a Old Testament framework that God has given really since the beginning of creation. 
Uh, it's a kind of two ways to live. He's painting this kind of like moment as a very stark contrast. You can continue to go through this broad gate and follow this broad, comfortable path that a ton of people are on and it'll feel good and it'll feel fun for a little while. And eventually, as you follow the wisdom that you kind of think is right and the wisdom that the crowds and the masses and the culture think is right, as you follow that way, you will find it ends in pain and destruction. That's where it goes. That's where it's headed. And you've probably tasted foretastes of that in different moments, the kind of like brokenness of this plight as you just follow the, the kind of broad desires of your heart and the broad kind of like paths of culture. And as you walk on that path and its comfort and its freedom, this sort of like carefree lifestyle, you feel the destructive patterns of that. He says that's a way that leads to destruction and there's this other path. It's a narrow gate. It's a very tight path and it leads to life. It leads to life. And it's not going to be the crowds that you're following on this way. It's going to be against the grain. It's going to be upstream. It's going to be against the current. The school of fish is headed that way, and you're going in a different way. And that way leads to life. And that pattern of these two ways to live goes all the way back to Genesis. In the Garden of Eden, the kind of moment that humanity is planted in is this flourishing life. And the way to enjoy life in relationship with God in this flourishing world is to trust and obey the words of the king. It has always been to trust and to obey the words of the creator king, the king who made us, who made all the joy, all the beauty, all the love, all the goodness, and our capacity, even our kind of facilities, our faculties to enjoy flourishing life. He made it. He made it. He designed us to experience joy and beauty and goodness and truth and love and light and rest and justice and wholeness. He made us for it. And the way to enjoy it in the beginning was to trust and obey the words of the king. What were the words of the king? I gave you this whole place. Enjoy it. One thing. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. You will die. There's a, two trees that were planted right in the middle of the garden, and they have massive significance for the whole framework of the biblical storyline. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And God says, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it. Why? What's the point? Is it an arbitrary tree? Was he like trying to think of a name? No, the whole framework of the knowledge of good and evil is this kind of way of understanding who gets to determine wisdom for life. Who gets to determine what constitutes flourishing human life? Who gets to determine the way that joy and love and life is supposed to be experienced in this created world as created beings? Do we as created beings have the right to determine what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad, what is whole and what is evil? Do we determine that or do we trust the creator to determine that? Do we trust the creator to decide it? And so to take of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to say to the creator, I'm not going to trust your wisdom for life. I'm going to take that responsibility on my own and I'm going to find my own way. So it's to distrust, to disbelieve the goodness of God and then to disobey the reign of God. That's the, from the beginning, it's the path. Distrust and disobey is the path that leads in the Genesis framework to death, to destruction. Away from the God of love, away from the God of light, away from the God of life, towards a place of pain, division, darkness, and death. The path to destruction. It's always been the path. And humanity as a whole 
has opted to turn away from the God of love, light, and life and to find our own way. And that's why it's a super broad path. And you can pick your way and you can follow your own design. You can follow the design of kind of the cultural leaders. You can follow the design of parents. You can follow the design of, you know, peers. You can follow the design of entertainment stars. You can follow the design, whatever you want. You can find a religion, make one up, whatever you want. It's super broad. Tons of people are on it. There are lots of options. And you can kind of do whatever you want on the path. And so the idea is it's a huge gate. It's a huge gate, and it leads to this huge path. And a ton of people are on it. It's spacious. The word for uh, kind of like easy in this passage, easy is not the best translation. It's just spacious, comfortable, a lot of freedom. Kind of like choose your own adventure on this one. The issue is it leads to pain. It leads to darkness. To follow your heart, do what you want, do what feels good just leads to pain. And Jesus is sitting down with you, like my friend sat down with me my freshman year in college, and saying, hey, you are on a path, or there are areas of your life where you are on a path that will lead to pain. It will lead to destruction. It will lead to breakdown. It will lead to division. It will lead to hatred. It will lead to darkness. It will lead to death. And he's inviting you to a different way, an alternative path. And the path is the same the path has always been, which is to trust and to obey the word of the king. And so in this passage, what Jesus says right here in the text is the gate is narrow and the way is, and it's not hard, the way is constricted. It's about a kind of like tight path where there's not a lot of room to move around. It's very clear what the direction is. And so what is the gate and what is the path? Um, Jesus has made it super clear in his own teachings and the rest of the New Testament makes it abundantly clear that the gate is Jesus. The way back on track to what you're designed to be as a human being is through Jesus. He said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father. Nobody is reconciled to the God of love, light, and life except through Jesus. So the way Peter said it in Acts chapter 4 is this. He said, this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. You rejected him. And he has become the cornerstone. In other words, it's through the person and work of Jesus, God is building a whole new humanity, a whole new dwelling place where he would dwell with his people and humans could experience the flourishing life of the kingdom. It's all through Jesus. And then Peter says, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we may be saved. There's one way. That might sound exclusive, but it's not exclusive. It is this universal invitation to all of humanity. I want you all to come home to the Father. But it's a very narrow gate. Everyone's invited, but you must come through Jesus. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is desired. The Father doesn't want any to perish. He doesn't want anybody to wander into destruction. That's why Jesus gives this exact commandment. He's saying, come to the narrow gate. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will show you love. I will show you grace. He laid down his life for us to cleanse us, wash us, forgive us, and reconcile us to God. He's the gate, and it's narrow. It's not a choose-your-own-adventure. It's Jesus. Decide to follow Jesus. He's the way to life. And that claim, again, is a claim that through Christ, he wants to spread and be shared as good news to everyone in the world. He wants everybody to hear, come to me. He said, I am the door. 
that the sheep hear my voice. And as they come through Jesus, they're welcomed back into the family of God, into the flock of God. It's a beautiful invitation through the narrow gate. But the narrow gate isn't the end of the journey. The narrow gate is the beginning of the journey. It's actually the entry onto this path, this path where we're actually called to continue as those who have trusted in Jesus to trust and to obey the teachings of our king. We talked about this last week, that the Great Commission isn't just about reconciliation with God the Father and the Son and the Spirit as we celebrate through baptism. It's also about learning to follow everything he commanded us. In other words, Jesus is saying, as you think about what leads to flourishing life, it's not like, well, figure it out and kind of you're on your own and find your own way in this broad path. It's, no, follow Jesus. Hang out with him every day. Wake up in the morning and read about his teachings and look at who he is and open your heart to his spirit and let him teach you again and again and again what it means to be human, what it means to love your enemies and to do good to those who harm you, what it means to, instead of objectifying women by lusting after them, to actually honor their dignity and to kind of uphold their dignity and to fight for integrity in your inner life. These are all things he's talked about in the Sermon on the Mount. What does it mean to not kind of condescendingly judge other people as if you are the arbiter of truth, but to humbly kind of like approach other people as a fellow sinner, a fellow traveler on the way with huge logs in your eye and and work to Be attentive to your own errors and your own weakness, your own limited vantage point, and remove those so that you could have a humble disposition as you interact and try to support others on their journey. This is all in the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talks about don't live your life trying to accumulate more and more things as if the accumulation of money or stuff or possessions is going to somehow satisfy this kind of longing in your soul. No, seek my kingdom first. Walk with me. Know that the Father values you and cares for you and and loves you and and follow him and seek his kingdom and I'll take care of your material needs. These are the ways of the kingdom. To actually follow Jesus, to spend time with him and to say this life isn't like, hey, should I forgive or should I not forgive? Well, that's like kind of I'm going to take on myself. Should I or should I not? Or the Jesus way is a little narrow way. It's like, yeah, forgive. Forgive. Forgive your enemies. Show grace, kindness. This is the way of Jesus. Is it, should I kind of like uh, continue in this path where I'm just living my whole life to accumulate and kind of build more and more wealth or build more and more lifestyle? Jesus is like, no, 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 be generous. And don't be generous to like build yourself up. Be generous as a way to actually express my generous love for the needy, right? Like it's this very specific way. And it will look different with all of our personalities, but there's a way to life that you were designed for. I think a lot of people think of Christianity as like, say a prayer, be forgiven, and like you get through the gate, and then on the other side of the gate, it's like do whatever you want until you go to heaven when you die. It's like, no, no, the gate is narrow, but so is the path. Every day, to wake up, to follow Jesus. Does that mean that what Jesus is saying is, if you obey all my commandments, then you will experience life with God forever and ever? No. Now, our relationship with God is contingent on the work of Christ, his grace towards us, his love, his mercy, but also his righteousness, that he has secured us in the love of the Father. But it's in the context of that love that we continue to demonstrate our faith by our obedience. The New Testament is just as clear that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But those who have that relationship, that gracious, covenantal, 
relationship that's dominated by God's incredible love for us, those who have that ought to demonstrate their faith in Christ by a life of following him day in and day out. And we wander. We veer off. We turn aside in different ways. And the mercy of Jesus is new every morning. The gate is open to you every day. And so the question that I think we all have to ask, that I had to ask this week and I have to keep asking, I was asking this morning as we were doing confession of sin, just seeing stuff in my heart, even from this morning. Like, God, is there an area where I'm turning to the broad path? Is there an area where instead of following you, where I'm opting to kind of just do whatever feels right to me, feels good to me, is there an area where I'm, I'm wandering away from the narrow path that leads to life? I want to encourage you, open your heart to the Holy Spirit. There might be something that comes to your mind in a second. You already know. You already know. And Jesus isn't trying to crush you or condemn you. He's not trying to stamp out your fun. He's inviting you away from destruction and into life. It's the way C.S. Lewis said it so beautifully as he talks about the desires, that God's not trying to kind of squash desire and squash our passion. He's trying to invite us into the true fulfillment of it. He said this famously, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. It's like we're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That the broad path like feels like momentary fleeting pleasures. And we think that this is where happiness comes and this is what's going to make me happy. And surrendering these desires would feel like death. It's like, no, 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 no. It's holding on to those desires what will lead you to death and destruction. Surrendering them is actually trusting Jesus like humans were designed to, trusting in his word, trusting in his wisdom and saying, I'm going to follow you because I believe what you've offered us is life to the full, abundant and flourishing life. It's complicated as we walk on the path to life um, for a lot of different reasons. We have internal desires that tug at us in different ways. And Jesus is so gracious and so patient uh, with us. Um, But there's also external voices that are at play always. Every day you have external voices that are beckoning you and calling you to these different paths. And that's what we see in this next section. And the call is here to watch out for the wolves. Look at verse 15. So beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What he says is as you journey through life, as you go on the journey, there's this broad path and a ton of people are on it. On that path, it's going to feel good. Uh, You're going to like it. It's going to feel happy and it's going to lead to pain and destruction ultimately. And you've probably tasted it. If you opt for the narrow path, if you opt for the narrow path, if you go through the narrow gate and opt, opt on the narrow path, as you're walking through this path, Be attentive because there are wolves who will seem like they're leading you in the right direction but actually are ravenous. They're trying to destroy you. They're feeding on you for their own exaltation. They're instead of tending to the sheep like a sacrificial shepherd who would lay down his life for the flourishing of the sheep, they're feeding on the sheep, coming near to the sheep to actually gain something for themselves, to build themselves up or exalt or establish their own life. It says they're ravenous. When you think about the word prophet. Uh, it talks about these as false prophets. We, we don't use that word very much talking about people. And so if you think about like, what does a false prophet look like? You're like, well, 
You know, it's probably somebody like, you know, googly eyes and wild hair and kind of bloodshot and just like looks, you know. And it's like, well, that looks like a false prophet, right? Like that's where like, that's not a good false prophet because good false prophets don't look like that. Uh, the false prophets that Jesus is warning us against are people that look like, man, they seem great. I like what they say. Feels good what they say. Feels kind of right. In fact, the New Testament is going to continue to paint a picture of these types of people that come into the community of God and start itching people's ears, giving them exactly what they want to hear. Exactly what they want to hear, kind of affirming their life. And the idea is people, it's either calling people away from the narrow path towards the broad path or affirming people on the broad path. I finally found a person. I'm on the broad path and I found some quote unquote Christian leader that seems to be affirming, this is cool, this is fine, this is no big deal, going on this path and it feels good. And they're affirming you on a path that leads to destruction and Jesus is saying, watch out. Watch out. So how do, you, how do you know? This is a hard thing to talk about as a preacher uh, because what this says is you need to pay attention to my teaching and my life. And you should care about it. Not just the content of my message, but the character of my life. And that's humbling. It's humbling to know that that matters. And I think it's an important thing to say, like, hey, that, that's something you should pay attention to. He's actually given us, he's given us wisdom and tools to actually discern leadership and voices that are from him. He says it right here in the passage. Look at what he says. You will recognize them by their fruits. And he gives this image. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the, into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So how do you know? So the, the word prophet kind of makes the category in our mental categories too small. The, the framework of a prophet is a guide. It's somebody that's claiming to be able to guide human beings to some way. And there are prophets who claim the name of God, who claim to be Christian prophets. There are secular prophets. The idea is these luminaries, these guides that are saying, this is the path to life. Follow my wisdom. Follow my way. And that can be explicit, right? It can be teachers, preachers, philosophers, speakers, politicians, entertainment leaders. It can be broad cultural kind of like thrusts. It can also just be kind of patterns in society from your peers. It can be kind of messaging from your parents. It can be the things that have like given you a sense of this is the way life is supposed to be lived. And so how do you know like what voices actually represent Jesus? And it's two things. It's always two things all throughout the New Testament. It's the content of the message and the character of the messengers. Always. It's the content of the message. Are they teaching things that align with what Jesus has taught? That's why we as a people need to be in the word of God. You need to be able to kind of look and say, is that consistent with what God said? Is that true to what God said? Is that true to the teaching of Jesus? You've got to be in the word. You've got to be in the word because people say crazy stuff. And there are plenty of churches that do nothing with God's word. Say feel-good messages, draw huge crowds, make a ton of money, a ton of money, and like feels good. I have lots of friends and family members that listen to pe- preaching and they're like, check out this message. And you're like, you listen to it. And I was like, that was so disconnected from the biblical story. Content of the message. You got to be in the word. You got to know this because it is a narrow path and you don't want to be kind of devoured by ravenous wolves, but also the character of the messenger. 
the character of the messenger. And what Jesus says is, look at the fruit of their life. Now, the, the phrase for fruit is just this kind of what's coming from the inside of them. It bubbles up and it's expressed through their character. You can actually see evidences of people that are full of the Spirit or not. And what are those evidences? It's love. It's joy. It's peace. It's patience. It's goodness. It's gentleness. It's faithfulness. It's self-control. And that sort of fruit is life-giving. It's not just stuff you see in them. It's stuff that's actually giving life to people around them. That as you look at people that you're following and the, and the kind of leaders or the peers or the coworkers, and you look at their life, is their life marked by evidence that this person is in relationship with the God of the universe, the God who is marked by love and joy and peace and patience and gentleness and goodness? You have to pay attention. Again, it's a humbling thing. I know in our culture, I just, this week, another teacher I have loved and respected just comes out tanked. Behind the scenes, he's, he's passed away. Um, and after his death, stories come out of incredible sexual misconduct. And it's like, I read that stuff and first I get this pit in my stomach because I've like so appreciated their teaching. And then I get this pit in my stomach because are people gonna be cynical or skeptical about me? And then I get this pit in my stomach of, oh, God forbid, God protect me from that path. And it just my just like this pit all week on all those levels. Like feel like betrayed, feel like are people gonna doubt me? And also like, oh God protect me. Oh God protect me. And God protect you. Because we're all leaders in, in different ways. And so I you know, the Bible's super clear, it says it in James, not many of you should become teachers knowing we'll receive stricter judgment. And that is like one of those don't want to be my life first, but is my life first? Kind of like things like, ah, you know, like there's a judgment, right? But there's something real for all of us as you look at the fruit of your life. And that's what this last passage leads us into. As you look at the fruit of your own life, that there's a caution for all of us. And here it is. Not all who claim Jesus truly know Jesus. This is a hard one because I I think it ought to this is hard for me to say because there's a spiritually dark place you can go. So I'm going to try and hear me really clearly. I think it ought to make us examine ourselves to see whether or not we are truly in the faith. That is a biblical concept. What I don't want to do is to create in God's people this suffocating and paralyzing insecurity. And so there's a, there's a fine line to walk here. But in the passage, what it says very, very clearly, look at it right here at the end of this. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, that's who enters the kingdom of heaven. The one who trusts and obeys the words of the Father. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Didn't we preach and teach your Bible? And didn't we build the church? And didn't we go to gospel community and go to small group and read the word and try to be involved in all the things? Didn't we kind of believe the right things in our head and do the right things in our life? And didn't we, didn't we, didn't we? And he says this, and it is one of the most sobering lines in all of Jesus' teachings. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Like, again, this is the, this is the friend sitting down and saying, this moment matters for you. It matters for you right now. That claiming Christianity, believing in your head certain things, 
Doing certain things is not the same as being known by and in relationship with the God of the universe. That at the core of what it means to be Christian is to be in relationship with the Father through the work of the Son by the power of the Spirit. To actually have a relationship with God where you feel known by him, where you've experienced his love and his grace, where he's spoken and convicted you of the broad path and the ways you've been living and he's reminded you and shown you the beauty of his mercy and his forgiveness through the death of Jesus and he's actually brought you into this relationship where he knows you and you're known by him and you walk with him and you relate to him. Even the word know in this passage has so much to do with relational intimacy. Like all throughout the storyline, the word knowledge is about relational intimacy. Like Adam knew his wife Eve and they conceived and bore a son. It is intimacy. And what Jesus is saying at the core of what it means to be Christian is relationship, to be known by God and to know his love and to walk with him. And in that place, absolutely, we fail and we wander and we turn, but it's a relationship where God sits down with you again through his spirit. Sunday after Sunday, when we have this moment of confession, we say, search me, O God, know my heart, see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. We're saying, I'm sitting down with my father again, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week and saying, speak to me and challenge me and lead me as a father would correct a child, draw me into your love and lead me in the right way, the narrow way that leads to life. And so there are people in in this room and joining us online that you have to stop and say, do I know him? And if the answer is, I'm not sure, it's not shame on you. It's enter by the narrow gate. It's come back to Jesus, turn to him, confess to him, confess to him. I don't know, maybe I've just been playing a game, but I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to experience your love. I want to be with you every day. I want to be in relationship with you. And so I circle back to that moment my freshman year where I felt this conviction or I was confronted by this friend. It was in that space that one of the most transformative experiences I've had in life, and I've had a few of these moments where in my greatest moments of failure, in the greatest moments of shame, people around me showed me grace and forgiveness. I remember vividly my soccer coach, a friend at the school, a faculty member, and some friends when I have felt like I betrayed all of their trusts, when I felt like I had failed them, showed me love and grace and forgiveness. And it was one of the more transformative experiences of my life because it's when God's grace meets us in the darkness of our shame that he brings real transformation. And that's the moment that Jesus wants to have with you in these times. is not like shame on you, but that as he meets you in those darker spaces, as he meets you in the conviction that his love and his grace and his faithfulness would wash over you and change you from the inside out. We're just saying, I know you're better than all these things. Your love is better than life. And so the invitation for us is, again, as Jesus sits down with you this morning, to trust him, to hear him, to let him wash you, cleanse you, forgive you, and invite you to follow him on the path that leads to life. Let's pray. Um, Jesus, we need you right now. And so would you pour out your grace on us And speak to us through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.